0: Welcome to Popcorn and Compliance, a podcast series where we take a look at movies and try to mine them for leadership and compliance lessons learned. I'm going to begin a series with my colleague Richard Lummis, where we're going to look at movies, and we're going to focus a little bit more on leadership than compliance, but we'll also talk about some of the compliance lessons learned that you can use as you move forward moving up the ladder to hopefully become a Chief Compliance Officer. It's going to be a fun series. I know you'll enjoy Richard's insights. He's got some great insights. Obviously, a little little bit different than Jay Rosen and Megan Doherty, but that's what makes this series so great. I know you will enjoy it. In this episode of Popcorn and Compliance, we take up the Oscar-winning Schindler's List. Welcome to Popcorn and Compliance, a podcast series where we take a look at movies and try to mine them for leadership and compliance lessons learned. I'm going to begin a series with my colleague Richard Lummis where we're going to look at movies and we're going to focus a little bit more on leadership than compliance, but we'll also talk about some of the compliance lessons learned that you can use as you move forward moving up the ladder to hopefully become a Chief Compliance Officer. It's going to be a fun series. I know you'll enjoy Richard's insights. He's got some great insights. Obviously, a little bit different than Jay Rosen and Megan Doherty, but that's what makes this series so great. I know you will enjoy it. In this episode of Popcorn and Compliance, we take up the Oscar-winning Schindler's List.
1: Today we're going to discuss Schindler's List from 1993 with Ben Kingsley, Ray Fiennes, and Liam Neeson. It was directed and co-produced by Steven Spielberg. It's highly critically acclaimed for its very interesting treatment of very difficult historic events. Tom, where would you like to
0: start? Really lot, a lot here, Richard. The Even leading up to how the movie was actually made as a story in and of itself, there was, and a name I know you'll find familiar, a book by Thomas Keneally about Schindler's List. It was the inspiration which led to the basis of the movie. Also, a term I was not familiar with before I started studying for this podcast, of Schindler Juden. Which is Jews or their descendants who were are alive today because of Oscar Schindler, and that there are more Schindler Juden living today than there are Jews in Poland. So there's six thousand Schindler Juden and four thousand Polish Jews in Poland today. And then the personal struggles. Like
1: yeah, I thought that was particularly appalling.
0: There was the personal struggle of Steven Spielberg to make this movie because he'd been offered this movie or other similar Holocaust movies, and he didn't feel he was up to it, not because he didn't think he was a great director or at least a competent director, because by that time he'd had multiple international successes, but he didn't feel he had the gravitas to do it. And he finally decided that he needed to do that for his own personal reasons. And the way he shot the film, Black and White... Any of the choices of camera angles and filming added to, certainly for me, the discomfort in many ways of having to rewatch this. But that whole process leading up to the filming of the movie was is equally interesting. And the Schindler-Juden themselves were the ones who wanted to carry the flame of Oscar Schindler and really did into the 60s. Certainly he was not well known in America, I don't think. And even though the, the book by Thomas Keneally, in an Australian, and that they wanted to keep his name alive because of what he had done. And so the yeoman's job of keeping that memory alive was from the Schindler Juden who brought it forward. So a lot going on just to, to get to where the movie was made. But maybe you could give us a little synopsis of this and then you can hopefully comment on it a little bit.
1: For a refresher course, since I'm sure most of you have seen this, Oskar Schindler was a repeated failure at multiple businesses. He actually had been a spy for the Abwehr, the German army intelligence, for a couple of years preceding the events of the movie. And he joined the Nazi party, I think, in 1939. So pretty late at that. But uh, anyway, he eventually finds success by taking advantage of the increasing isolation of Jews to get funding from them to set up a metalwork factory ostensibly to provide goods under contracts with the German army. Initially, at the instigation of his accountant, who was a Jew, they issued fake papers to hire Jews as essential workers because at this point the Nazis were discriminating between non-essential workers who would be sent to the camps and essential workers who would be allowed to live in the ghettos for a while longer. As an example of how opportunistic he was when he was told that he could get Jews for seven Reichsmarks a day, but Poles would cost more, he said, then why on earth would I hire Poles? His accountant also pointed out that the seven marks went straight to the SS and that the workers were essentially slaves. You see some of his life at this point in the movie. He's an amoral opportunist and womanizer. Eventually, over time, he shifted to protect the Jews by bribing corrupt German officials. And the foil here is Eamon Geth, an SS officer. It's never really clear if he's a true Nazi believer or just a sadist. But in 1943, he liquidated the Krakow ghetto, moving able-bodied people to concentration camp and murdering the rest. He took huge bribes from Schindler, first for moving workers to a subcamp in the factory, and then for moving them out of Poland to Czechoslovakia when they were going to be sent to Auschwitz. By this point, Schindler has turned and is devoted to saving as many Jews as possible, and essentially spends his entire ill gotten fortune on bribes in order to permit the Jews to live. He managed to convince the SS not to post guards inside the factory. And he even permitted the workers to have Sabbath services in the factory. As the war ends, Schindler's forced to flee because from the Soviets because he's a Nazi Party member and a war profiteer. And he breaks down, thinking that he didn't do enough to save as many as he could. The workers give him a letter of commendation and a ring. Um, with a Talmudic inscription on it to help him get away, which he eventually does. His subsequent life was a failure. You find out in the afterwards that he failed at numerous businesses and his marriage failed as well. So a lot of the, it was filmed in black and white and you see a lot of scenes of just wanton brutality and murder on the part of the Nazis. One of the things I thought was, there, there is a scene where there's a little girl whose dress is red which I thought was interesting cinematically because that's supposed to represent the turning point for Schindler when he sees her body on a stack. But uh, that's cinema for you. I thought the choice of black and white was interesting. It made it look more historical because so much of the footage from that period is in black and white. But I'm not sure it didn't help distance you from some of the events. What did you think about that, Tom?
0: That's interesting because I remember seeing this when it came out and rewatching it. In preparation for this podcast, I found it almost gut-wrenching. And for me, black and white always adds a level of discomfort, terror, ease, probably because of my love of the 30s classic horror movies. By Universal, I associate with black and white and also (laughs) film noir. But I thought it it really, for me, added a level of, of, uh, that's an interesting observation by uh, distancing you by having black and white. For me, it always adds a level of unease and I felt uneasy throughout this movie. It does make it feel more documentary. It, it does. And actually Spielberg, I think, said he decided to shoot it in a documentary style. And after he made that decision, one of the kind of follow-on decisions almost logically was to shoot it in black and white for that reason, to almost to make it that way. And and I think as a, for, as a cinematic choice, it certainly worked for me, although it may do, be due to my own eccentricity. The other thing that you touched on this, a little bit in your uh, discussion of the SS officer played by Ray Fiennes, Hamming Goth, I've vacillated between an incarnation of pure evil and Hannah Arden's the banality. Because when I sit back and dispassionately study the Holocaust and the Nazi regime, it just seems to me it's exactly what she said: just a bunch of bureaucrats executing a corporate strategy. And then, what, and then when you see it and you hear people being shot for no reason, good reason, no reason, bad reason, any reason, just around the campgrounds, basically. I'm not quite sure you can have much more evil than that. And certainly the clearing of the ghettos and all that entailed, as well as the treatment of Jews throughout the movie. I'm still torn between the really the devil incarnate evil or just the banality of evil, which in many ways Goth was, although I saw him as more, much more probably the incarnate of just sadism and evilness, but I think that there's an argument that can be made is he's just a middle manager executing the corporate
1: orders. And he's a corrupt one too because he's willing to subvert those orders in exchange for huge sums of cash, which I don't know if that makes him more or less evil, but uh, I thought he was a very powerful foil for the Schindler characters continued, who is treated generally ambiguously until the very end. If you haven't seen the movie in a while, highly recommend it. I found it very disturbing. We're seeing instances of anti-Semitism rise again, and I think it may just be that the distance in time from the Holocaust is enabling people to see it as a a one-time event rather than something that people are capable of. And on that cheery note...
0: So, Richard, I did see some... Actually, I did see some, some leadership lessons that perhaps we could discuss, even in the context of a modern business. And I thought Schindler really showed several different types of leaderships that really apply today. Maybe the, this is not a leadership lesson, but I think it's something that we, needed, we need to keep in mind, which is our heroes are not always perfect. And I was reminded of the play that was on Broadway all the way with LBJ. And it was about the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And it was a wonderful performance by Brian Cranston as LBJ. But LBJ was a complete SOB. And to the point where it's where at one night he gets so frustrated, he curses out Lady Bird. And LBJ has always been one of my heroes. And it's disconcerting when that you see your hero is really, in many ways, not a hero. And it's just a human, just a man. And it's difficult to see that sometime, but perhaps we need to be more cognizant of that. Number two is that I learned this from or heard this most recently in my podcast series on 9-11. And I interviewed someone who had been a junior in college in ROTC on on 9-11. And he said that night he knew he was going to war. And later in the podcast, I asked him, what was the biggest lesson He took away from his in-country service in wartime in Iraq, and he said, make a decision. Maybe the wrong decision. If you're trapped, do something. Don't sit there. Don't wait for the best decision. Do something. You'll Always correct it later. You can make another decision. And that really struck me about Schindler is that he took action. And it may have been a small step. It may have been 1,000 people he saved or 1,200 people but to actually do. And then the other thing that I want to maybe use to introduce some ethical lessons after we talk about some of these leadership lessons are all of us, I think our strengths and weaknesses are really mirror images of themselves. And and for Schindler, it was his weakness as a businessman, which led him to see this business opportunity in Poland with slave labor and having a, basically a government, con, no-bid contract on, based on slave labor. And he had the moral flexibility to bribe, cheat, and steal to get to his goal. And that so in many ways, his moral ambiguity or his flexibility led him to actually doing something that was very powerful. Before we get to maybe any ethical lessons, any thoughts on any of those points from you?
1: Yeah, and I think one of the other things is that he was generally fairly self-aware. He recognized that he had no skill at all in raising money, no skill at all in operating a business. And so he basically subcontracted the first to his accountant and subcontracted the second to some of the Jews who actually had some experience to work for him. And he said that all he was good at was presentation, which he was an excellent salesman. He was excellent at maintaining cordial relationships with the Nazi leadership and getting the contracts. Um, so I think that was also interesting. He was aware of his strengths and weaknesses and and sought to parlay his weakness or to eliminate his weakness through sub, subcontracting, but to focus on what he could do well. And as for not always being per-
0: the You pointed out, I think correctly, the girl in the red dress. And in the cinematic version, that was supposed to be One of the key turning points for his internal conflict, realizing that the invidiousness and the evil of the system that he was now a part of, and I don't know, it's hard to tell from the movie and even reading what I could about Schindler, his own evolution. Typically, you don't wake up one day and say, oh, I'm in an evil system. It's a series of steps to get you there. And I know they had to make a a dramatic turning point in the movie, and that's the girl in the red dress, I think. A red coat, I should say. But he did have an internal conflict. The business he chose, I thought initially he saw no conflict with his own humanity in employing slave laborers to sell to an occupying army. Although the other point, and I'm not quite sure how this works in, but I think it's something that should be at least acknowledged, is he was Czech. He was not German, he was not Polish, he was Czech. And he did join the Nazi party in 1939. He must have been a sudetenland German, but he was his home domicile up until at least the invasion of sudetenland was Czechoslovakia. And so there was a, some type of distance there. Then, as you also correctly noted, he used a very corrupt means to achieve his goals. He basically bribed the Nazis. And it made me wonder how ubiquitous that conduct was by the occupying army. I think we both read novels or books that maybe touched on that in the background, but no, nowhere else did I see that as, as straightforward as we saw it in the movie version of Schindler's List. Any of your thoughts on any of those ethical imbroglios? We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more on leadership lessons from the movie schindler's list from what
1: i've read the nazi regime was essentially largely kleptocratic i think there were there was constant log rolling if not outright cash exchanges with the nazi leaders in exchange for obtaining some of these contracts now, i'm not sure how different that is from anywhere else it's just the evil of nazism and their the evil of their goals makes it appear so outstanding but and the Again, one of the things that makes it such a powerful movie is the internal conflict of Schindler and the the gradual growth and shift and his inability to continue supporting a system that resulted in the mass murder of people. How he could have not noticed that until he saw a girl in a red coat, I don't know.
0: And then maybe next, Richard, I'd like to explore and I'd like to specifically call out an article by Keith Carpenter that we're going to link to in our show notes, which which was entitled Oscar Schindler, A Sheep in Wolf's Clothing. And uh, it was an interesting article about the leadership style, but what struck me the most was that he tied it to a book that came out in, I believe, 1977, which is now a classic by Robert Greenleaf entitled Servant Leadership. And he identified many of the characteristics of Schindler in the context of servant leadership. And I thought this really had some, this article really distilled some important leadership lessons for today that maybe I'd like to spend a few minutes talking through and then get your comments on some of these as well. A servant leader, a, your servant leadership is servant first, not a leader first. And you try to be a servant to those who are your stakeholders, your employees, or a wider variety of group so that you can empower them really do the best they can. I know that's a very oversimplification, but many of Schindler's actions from things like allowing the Jewish workers to celebrate the Sabbath or other religious events, to food, to, to simple something as simple as taking a shower, I think actually made them, if not better workers, certainly increase their ability to live as humans. Acceptance and empathy is that you empathize with your stakeholders and employees or whoever the group may be, but you also recognize what you pointed out, Richard, which is your own shortcomings, but also that there are going to be some per- some person's or some person's efforts that are really not good enough. And here, I think this led to Schindler having a pretty fair understanding of Amon Goth, Ray Fine's character as well, and allowed him to really find out what he wanted, and which was just greed, money and he, he did flatter him, so he was, I think, good at that. But then the next point, Richard, was awareness. And this is beyond simply self-awareness. This was actually business skill and business intelligence. And they, he used the example of Hitler got caught off guard when they shut down his Polish work camp, and they were going to ship everyone to ostrich And he got caught off guard by that, and he had to scramble to save his workforce and save those he could. And he vowed never to be without that kind of intelligence again, whether he got it by hook, crook, bribery, or other means. And I think that's a really important lesson, which is to have information. And throughout this podcast series, I think we've had a few key themes. And as a business leader, information has to be right up there at the top of to allow you have the most information to make a decision. And then the the final point was in servant leadership by Greenleaf was healing. And that certainly was, I think, a key byproduct of the way Schindler led. And what he did is he allowed people under him to heal as much as they could in just horrific circumstances. I, I don't know if that's a fitting, a very square puzzle in a circular hole that Robert Greenleaf diagram for us in servant leadership. But there's some, I think, important leadership traits in those points that the business leader of today can take away and use going forward. Richard, anything in the servant leadership or that article that, that struck you is also applicable in circa 2022? The well,
1: first thing that struck me is it sounds like a book I should have read at some point. But I'll try to remedy that. I thought that it was a bit of a stretch to to jam him into the servant leadership role, just because of his his constant goal, it wasn't his constant goal, but his initial goal of getting rich. He certainly wasn't a servant leader. Maybe he morphed into and certainly some of the examples in the article indicate that. And as you pointed out, his humane treatment of the workers in the factory could also be certainly fit the acceptance and empathy and awareness categories. The leadership style is very easy to contrast Amon Geth's totally top-down style with schindler's more collaborationist especially with the ben kinsley ben kingsley character of his accountant and they seem to have developed a pretty decent relationship too but yeah i thought it was it's very interesting to consider him from in the context of a leader and what his style was i think the green leaf was a very interesting article and i highly recommend it so what are your final thoughts tom
0: really i'll circle back to something i started with was it just the incarnation of evil or is it the banality of evil and if I could maybe contrast or explore that question a little bit through a discussion of the documentary Shoah. And Shoah came out, I can't remember, the 80s, maybe early 90s. I think we saw maybe one part of it together. But it was a nine-hour documentary on the Holocaust. But what struck me was exactly what I said throughout this, the banality of it all. And uh, one of the key scenes in show from part one was a train driver, a Polish train driver, who drove the train to Auschwitz. And you saw how so many working parts had to exist to make the whole system work, literally down to a train driver to drive people to Auschwitz to be executed. And all the way up to the top, whether it was Hydrich or any of the other prominent Nazi leaders who were part of the final solution. It all seemed to be just another day at the office. And so I've struggled with that, obviously, for quite a long time in my life. And I still don't know the answer to it, as with many things, probably a little bit of both. But it was an important movie. I'm glad Spielberg did it. I think it did a lot for him personally. I think it did a lot for kind of a re-exploration of the Holocaust at that point in time, 93, when the movie came out. As you said, now maybe we're due for another one of those. Can't even teach about the Holocaust in high school now. Maybe it's time to to have another similar movie. But in terms of a cinematic event, it was fabulous. It was well-deserved for Oscar consideration. And numerous oscars that it won about
1: any closing thoughts from yourself i totally agree with that and the, the phrase banality of evil has almost become cliched in itself but the scene i remember most from show was an interview with the engineer who designed the crematoria and you could tell he was still excited at the difficult challenge of burning that many wet bodies that fast and that he had managed to um, that challenge in order to design the crematorium and total, totally able to isolate that from what the what was going on I just thought it was remarkable the compartmentalization that uh, some people were able to, to accomplish and then to continue it for decades I thought the movie was outstanding as I said I wrestled with the black and white distinction especially when he used the, the, uh, the girl in the red coat to emphasize the black and whiteness but He's a better filmmaker than I am, and certainly with the power of the film, I think it, w- it was a very good choice. If you haven't seen it in a while, recommend you see it. I also recommend the articles.
0: This is Tom Fox again. hope you've enjoyed this episode of Popcorn and Compliance. If you haven't checked out my newest short series, Never the Same, I hope you will do so. It's a series focused on how business has changed forever after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I did this with Brandon Daniels, CEO, President at Exeger. We took up five topics, supply chain, trade and economic sanctions, and I brought on a corruption compliance, cybersecurity, and ESG. I know you will enjoy it and find it very interesting, all from the Compliance Podcast Network. We look forward to visiting with you again on Popcorn and Compliance. First of all, the train, it was almost, to me, Art Deco. Yes. And the design of the outside of the train, and when they got in the interior, that seemed to me to actually come out of Indiana Jones 2 when he was in Shanghai mm-hmm. and the nightclub scene. Very Art Deco. All they needed were a tux and a long mm-hmm. dress. Sylvie and I think it would have just really touched it off but did you see any Indiana Jones? I did and it's it's been far too long since I've seen that movie especially in my notes I just wrote that train is like in Indiana Jones, ask Tom I figured you would have the response to that one it also reminded me a little bit of Snowpiercer with the train either as or on the way to the ark and the decorations and the just general feeling of hopelessness <laughs> This is Tom Fox again, hope you've enjoyed this episode of popcorn, and compliance. If you haven't checked out my newest short series, Never the Same, I hope you will do so. It's a series focused on how business has changed forever after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I did this with Brandon Daniels, CEO, president at Exeter. We took up five topics, supply chain, trade and economic sanctions, and I brought anti-corruption compliance, cybersecurity, and ESG. I know you'll enjoy it and find it very interesting, all on the Compliance Podcast Network. We look forward to visiting with you again on Popcorn and Compliance. So, uh, first of all, the train, uh, it was almost to me art deco. Yes. And the design of the outside of the train and when they got in the interior, um, that seemed to me to actually come out of Indiana Jones 2 when he was in uh, Shanghai mm-hmm. and the nightclub scene. Uh, very art deco. Uh, uh, the, you know, all they needed were uh, a tux and a long mm-hmm. dress. For Sylvie, and I think it would have just really touched it off. But uh, did you see any Indiana Jones in that? Um, I did. And it's uh, it's been far too long since um, I've, I've seen that movie. Especially in my notes, I just wrote, that train is like in uh, Indiana Jones, right? Ask Tom. So
1: <laughs> I figured you would have the response to that one. Um, it also reminded me a little bit of
0: Snowpiercer um, with the train um, either as or on the way to the ark and the the decorations and the just general feeling of hopelessness.
1: <laughs> this podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c sweetradiocom